0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hillhead Baptist Church, where we are gathered to worship God. It's lovely to see some new faces, uh, some visitors with us, some returning faces, and of course the latecomers are gathering in the porch, and we're not going to let them in because we want to get a good start to our worship. We're going to begin by hearing some words from the letter to the church in Rome, and I'm reading from the Contemporary English Version. God, doesn't accept people simply because they obey the law. No, indeed. All the law does is to point out our sin. Now we see how God does make us acceptable to him. The law and the prophets tell us how we become acceptable, and it isn't by obeying the law of Moses. God treats everyone alike. He accepts people only because they have faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But God treats us much better than we deserve. And because of Christ Jesus, he freely accepts us and sets us free from our sins. God sent Christ to be our sacrifice. Christ offered his life's blood so that by faith in him, we could come to God. And God did this to show that in the past... He was in the right to be patient and to forgive sinners. This also shows that God is right when he accepts people who have faith in Jesus. Let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Still us, Lord God. Quieten our hearts and our minds as we gather in your presence. Take from us the thoughts that distract, the worries and concerns that pull and tug at the tailcoats of our intention and help us to concentrate on you. May your spirit breathe life-giving breath into us, working through us as individuals and among us as your body. And may your name be praised in the words we speak, in the thoughts we think, and in the things we do. To you be all honour, and all glory, and all praise, the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Our first reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 35, starting halfway through the second verse. Everyone will see the Lord's splendour. See his greatness and power. Give strength to hands that are tired and to knees that tremble with weakness. Tell everyone who is discouraged, be strong and don't be afraid. God is coming to your rescue, coming to punish your enemies. The blind will be able to see and the deaf will hear. The lame will leap and dance and those who cannot speak will shout for joy. Streams of water will flow through the desert. The burning sand will become a lake and dry land will be filled with springs. And our second reading is from James chapter 2, starting at the first verse. My friends, you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in glory and you must always be impartial. For instance, Two visitors may enter your meeting, one a well-dressed man with gold rings and the other a poor man in grimy clothes. Suppose you pay special attention to the well-dressed man and say to him, please, take this seat, while the poor man, you say, you stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Do you not see that you're discriminating among your members and judging by wrong standards? Listen, my dear friends, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to possess the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? And yet you have humiliated the poor man. Moreover, are not the rich your oppressors? Is it not they who drag you into court and pour contempt on the honoured name by which God has claimed you? If, however... You are observing the sovereign law laid down in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself. That is excellent. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and you stand convicted by the law as offenders. For if a man breaks just one commandment and keeps all the others, he is guilty of breaking all of them. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, said also, you shall not commit murder. If you commit murder, you're a breaker of the law, even if you do not commit adultery as well. Always speak and act as men who are to be judged under a law which makes them free. In that judgment, there will be no mercy for the man who has shown none. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my friends, for someone to say he has faith when his actions do nothing to show it? Can that faith save him? Suppose a fellow Christian, man or woman, is in rags with not enough food for the day and one of you says, goodbye, keep warm and have a good meal, but does nothing to supply their bodily needs. What good is that? So with faith, if it does not lead to action, it is by itself a lifeless thing. It's
0: no secret that my favorite book in the entire Bible is the letter of James. And within that book, that letter, the chapter I like most is chapter two. Well, perhaps "like" is not the right word, but the, the chapter that speaks most to me. and that there is a pithy statement which occurs in verse 17 and also verse 26, that for me, seems to be the guide to me as a minister, a kind of motto by which I work that says, in one translation faith without deeds is dead it's no good knowing all the right stuff and believing all the right stuff unless it finds expression in every day of our lives now I'm not going to claim that I actually manage that that would be arrogant and blatantly untrue but it's one of the touchstones to which I return when I reflect on my life and my work. Does the way I live express the faith I claim? The title of this short series, Doers of the World, word, sorry, Doers of the Word, is another way of saying the same thing. Because this is the central theme of James's short but powerful letter, doing what we claim we believe. Last week, we identified and pondered necessarily, extremely briefly, the attitude of gratitude that should shape our worldview. That recognising that all that God has given to us and continues to give to us materially, spiritually and intellectually should prompt us to show the same generosity to other people. And we noted last week that that first chapter ended with a call to support the most vulnerable people in society, the widows and orphans, rather than merely conforming to the practices and standards of a consumerist culture, the world that is all about getting more for ourselves. Now, I'm sure you know that the chapter and verse divisions in Scripture are, generally speaking, artificial. Artificial. Somewhere along the line in history, they were put in to make large texts more manageable for people who wanted to read them and understand them. So what we actually have as we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2 is not a new topic. He's actually carrying on from where he left off. So the showing uh, generosity towards widows and orphans, caring for them, leads on into where we go next about being impartial. If lives are shaped by an attitude of gratitude, and if that gratitude finds expression in generosity, what does that look like? How do we develop and exercise a form of generosity that is consistent with our faith rather than corrupted by the values of a world in which we live? And so James begins to explore this with this very stark example of wealth and poverty. I love chapter two because it's pithy. And actually, do you know, I think there's a slight sarcasm running through that. As he talks about the partiality that is already evident, it must be, in that faith community. Why would he be writing about it if they got it all sorted? Two people arrive. And one of them is clearly very wealthy. Nice Mercedes, sharp suit, Rolex watch, whatever it might be. And another one arrives who's, well, quite frankly, rather scruffy. Maybe their trainers are a bit leaky and their clothes are a bit scruffy. And all attention is lavished on the wealthy one. And the scruffy poor one is... Well, you can go over there, out of the way, where I can't see you. This is... Worldly, as far as James is concerned. This is judging people as the world judge that values worth by how much money you've got, by how good your education is, by how much power you have. And he's saying that's absolutely not how it should be in the community faith. Some of the commentators say that the scenario he's talking about is not Sunday worship, but actually more like a primitive church meeting. And it's a gathered to arbitrate in a case of disagreement. So it's a scenario where the congregation acts as a kind of a court. They listen to people and they make a decision on the issue that's being presented. Now, I don't know whether that's true, though that would have been practice in the early church. And in fact, it would have still been practice in early Baptist churches. It is interesting to pause for a moment and think about our own church meetings and how we behave in them, not least because we've got one later on today. Who holds the power? Who is it who is always speaking out And whose opinion seems to hold sway. Who's afraid to speak or feels that their opinion is always dismissed? Now we need to be careful because our perception and the reality are not always going to tie up. We might think somebody's powerful who's actually quaking in their boots. We might feel our opinion is dismissed, but actually... There are 30 people working very hard to make sure that that opinion is taken on board in a complex set of decision making. But it's worth all of us just taking a moment to think how we approach church meetings. Who do we listen to? Who do we admire? And who winds us up, apart from Katrina? And who do we dismiss out of hand? Because actually, if we're honest, all of us listen to some people and dismiss some people. All of us get wound up by some people. That's how it is. Chairing the church meeting is a great privilege, but it's a humongous responsibility. It might not always seem like it, but I work really hard to include as many voices as possible to make sure that different views are heard and not always to impose my opinion. In fact, sometimes we agree to do something that wouldn't have been what I wanted. That's the way it goes. That's when I get it right, perhaps. I don't always get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong, because I'm human and partial, and I have my own kind of tunnel vision. But I do at least try to be aware of the power that goes with sitting behind that table, standing behind this lectern, and think through what that means. One of the things I love about this chapter of James is the way he points out just how stupid it is to kowtow to rich and powerful people. Have you noticed that? Who is it that oppresses you? Who's going to take you to court? Who's going to let you down? Who's going to take all the adulation and praise you give them with no thought for you or your needs? That would be the rich ones then, the powerful ones. There you are, trying to suck up to these people. And actually, they couldn't give a monkey's about you. I could use worse language, but it is a Sunday. They don't care. They'll just take all you give them. They're not bothered about you. The very people you're trying to impress, not bothered. I find that quite salutary. salutary, Because that is actually a kind of worldly corruption, isn't it? Society says that wealth and power and education and opportunity are ours to exploit. Society says the people we need to impress the movers and shakers so we can secure our own advantage, seek promotion, get higher pay, more kudos, whatever it might be. But what if it all goes awfully wrong? What if you don't succeed or are let down? What do you do when that powerful organisation goes belly up and takes all your savings with it, or your pension, or whatever it might be? No, says James, the community of faith is to be very different. Criteria of status, wealth, education, and success are inappropriate means of valuing people. Prompted by gratitude to God, you should be equally generous to all people irrespective of who they are. Well, that sounds all right, doesn't it? We can sign up to that. There's nothing to disagree with. But it's not that easy because all of us discriminate to some extent between people, partly because we relate more easily to some than others and partly because there are some people who actually make us feel intimidated or looked down upon or whatever it might be very difficult to treat everybody equally and value them equally. I've really wrestled this week with what impartial generosity might look like and how this passage might relate to us, recognising that on a global scale, everybody sitting here this morning is affluent, educated and privileged. And in fact, on a local scale, many members of this congregation hold higher degrees, occupy powerful and responsible positions. We are the rich people in that story, whether we like it or whether we don't like it. So what then does this mean to people who have career aspirations that include getting qualifications, that include securing well-paid, rewarding positions? Does it mean they shouldn't? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means they need to be aware of the privilege and the responsibility that brings? What does it mean to those who have low self-worth, and there are plenty in this church, even amongst that former group, who say, well, actually, I'm only a working-class boy or girl. I'm only a housewife. I'm only a whatever it is they do. How do we hold together good self-esteem with recognising the privilege that we have and working to develop an attitude that respects all people equally. Clearly what the letter isn't saying is that we just reverse the status quo. That would be to replace one inequality with another. We don't just go, okay, we'll not bother about rich people, we'll just worry about poor people, because that's still wrong, that's still missing the point. And neither is it about some kind of quota system, where on every committee we have to have this many women and that many people under 40 and that many people of colour and so many from that socio-economic group. Because that's not about impartiality either. It's, it's another kind of distortion. Because actually what we're saying is being on the committee has some kind of status and kudos about it. It's really difficult. There are no simple answers. And if you've got the simple answers, please come and tell me because I've been struggling with this all week. What it seems to me is that we are given the challenge of valuing all people equally to show to all people the self-same generosity and respect we wish to be shown ourselves. All people now, there are categories we use quite often and we think about this. Identity, uh, our racial identity, our gender identity, sexuality, relations t- status, bleh, relationship status, education, occupation, religion. These, we all say, these should all be treated equally. Yeah, that's fine. But it's got to be more than just boxes and ticking. Can I, or can we... Show the same generous hospitality to somebody we know to be a convicted criminal and to somebody who is law abiding, for example? Hopefully, we would say yes. So, can I show, or we show, the same generous hospitality to somebody whose crime is fraud or embezzlement as to somebody who shoplifted to feed their children? Can we show the same generous hospitality to a paroled paedophile out on licence as we do to a person convicted of death by dangerous driving or a reformed drug dealer? Because if we take seriously what the letter says, if we look for the principle behind the example, those are the kind of questions we have to work with. Impartial hospitality means welcoming people that we might perceive to be sinful. Can we show that hospitality to a person whose lifestyle challenges or offends us? Because we believe that the big-hearted God who has shown outrageous generosity to us does the same for that person. And dare we remind ourselves of the parts of scripture that are unequivocally impartial and universal. I wonder what you were hearing in that call to worship from the book of Romans. We find lots of reassurance and encouragement there, but it actually has a sting in its tail. All have sinned. In fact, all continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin is not just rule breaking, be that the church's rules or the nation's rules or the Ten Commandments or the whole of Leviticus, if anybody actually dares to say they know the whole of Leviticus. It's not focusing on those things that actually secretly titillate us, so, you know, the nasty sins that stir up all sorts of stuff in our brains. That's us actually sinning, I think, then. Sin is about our inability about everybody's inability to live a perfect life that reflects God's glory. All have sinned. All continue to sin. And yet, this big-hearted God continually forgives us and by the cross has eternally, once and for all, overcome sin and death and their consequences. This outrageous generosity, born of a love that drew evil into itself at Gethsemane, should inspire us to show the same generosity to others. People who perhaps we perceive as sinful, or less than us, or lower than us, or higher, or better. It's not easy. There will be plenty of times when we mess it up, when our old prejudices or our new anxieties result in us being less hospitable than we would hope. But in James' letter, we get a pretty stern warning. Do you remember the words of Jesus? He said to his followers, Judge not, lest you be judged. James picks that up and he says, Judgment without mercy will be shown by God to those who fail to show mercy to others. As you treat others, so God will treat you. As God has welcomed us, therefore we must welcome other people without judging, without condemning, without saying that we are superior. Of course there are injustices we need to continue to challenge. That's absolutely the case. And of course we need to continue to address what is sinful in our own lives. But what we need to remember, I think, as we read this passage, is in the sight of God... We are the poor person in the shabby clothes who comes to plead their cause in the church or the meeting or the courtroom. This is the person who is powerless. But God impartially accepts us and welcomes us with open arms and then says, effectively, go and do likewise.
2: Let us come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Let us pray. Merciful God, who is slow to anger and quick to show mercy, we come into your presence with humility and with thanksgiving. We give thanks for our fellowship together here in this worshiping community. For the opportunity to come together to share in the love of God with one another. Each of us with our different outer appearances and each with our different inner concerns. Each with our different certainties and each with our different doubts. Each of us with our different gifts that we bring to our worship and with our different needs from this time together each of us at different stages in our faith journeys and seeking answers to our own different questions. We are all valued in your eyes. We give thanks for your unconditional love that binds us together here to serve one another in the work of your kingdom, that binds us together here and with all our other worshiping communities and fellowships in your worldwide church and that binds us all together with our diverse gifts and weaknesses. We celebrate this diversity and rejoice in our unity, our oneness, in the receiving and giving of your blessings, your love, and your grace. Gracious God, we give thanks for your greatest gift, your Son, who by his grace calls us as his friends, not just as his servants. He who chooses as his friends the sick, the disadvantaged, the outcasts, and even the who are his enemies, so that they may become his friends, and all who wish to receive his friendship. For it is through his grace alone, and not through our own works, that we can be called his friends. Help us to follow this example to give ourselves in friendship to all whom we meet so that others may see and experience the grace of our Lord. Forgiving God you have generously given your love and your grace and your forgiveness to all who seek you and continue to do so steadfastly even though we fail. Be with us as we try to express your grace and your love in all our thoughts, in all our words, and in all our deeds. Be with us as we try to demonstrate the generosity of your Spirit equally and without judgment, without favoritism, and without being dismissive. Be with us as we try to live out your grace so that your love and your grace are not just merely words, but are our faith in action through the person that is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: And now may the God who welcomes us without favour or prejudice and who loves us with an inexhaustible love so transform our hearts and minds that we may express impartial generosity to all we encounter today, tomorrow and every day.